Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Plodcast, presented by Canon Press. Welcome to the podcast. This is episode 253. Podcast 253. I'm Douglas Wilson. I'm glad you decided to join me. Now, I want to talk uh, this time a, a little bit about what it means to prove something. What does it mean to prove something? Um, one of the things that philosophers do to get themselves tangled up is they like to talk about things like epistemic certainty. And they want to say that something is not proven unless we have epistemic certainty that this is the case. And then you say, yes, this is the case. Two and two make four. And then the questions, uh, the questions start to pile on. And they say, is it, have you ever been wrong before? Have you ever been wrong before where you th- thought that it was absolutely not possible to be wrong? And everybody would say, yeah, I've, I've had some changes of heart and changes of mind that I didn't see coming. And so I could be, I've been wrong before. And so couldn't, isn't it possible that you could be wrong about this? And, and so, uh, however self-evident it may appear to be. So that's the push for epistemic certainty. Now I have a hard time, um, uh, dealing with this as anything other than a recurrence of the age-old temptation that began in the Garden of Eden, uh, you shall be as God. Uh, I think only God has epistemic certainty. Uh, we are creatures. We are finite. We are bounded. We are limited. That doesn't mean that we can't know things. That simply means that uh, we've got to look for a calculus other than sort of the absolute certainty that some people are looking for. Um, I can know the absolute, but I cannot know absolutely. Uh, so I think a finite creature made in the image of God can know the absolute as the direct object of his knowledge, but he cannot know absolutely with that absoluteness being the adverb that modifies how he knows. I can know nothing absolutely, but I can know the absolute. And the reason I can know the absolute is because the Bible tells me that I can know God. So, how do I know that I know the absolute? How do I know? How, what is it to prove something? Well, here, here it goes. Um, I would submit to you that to pro- proving something to someone means that what you're doing is obligating belief. You're bringing them to the point where if they refuse to accept what you're saying, they're sinning. You are obligating belief. So if someone, uh, and it it could be about a major thing, it could be about a trivial thing. If you come in and say it's raining outside um, and someone says, I don't believe you, uh, what would it take to make it sinful for them to continue to deny that it's raining? Uh, So you walk walk over to the wall and flip the switch and the skylight opens and it starts raining on him. Uh, you have obligated belief, okay? You've obligated belief. If you po- just pointed to the skylight, he could say, oh, there's somebody up there with a hose or, you know, 
you know, there, if you close off every avenue of his possible objections, then you have gotten to the point where you have obligated belief. So the, uh, the guards at the tomb, when Jesus rose, knew that he rose. And when they took money to lie about it, they were going contrary to what had been proven to them, meaning that their belief was under obligation. Uh, when Jesus appeared to Thomas and invited him to put his, uh, his hand in the Lord's side and, and to feel the nail prints, he was obligating belief. That is, he was proving something. Or you can assemble the premises of your argument out of Scripture, and you can lay them out in such a way that the person is morally sinning if they refuse to go along. But they don't have to say, I have uh, so many yards of knowledge, or I have so many pounds of knowledge. Our, our testimony is not the testimony of an absolute being. Our epistemology is not the epistemology of an absolute being. We have what I would call an epistemology of blood. We have an epistemology of blood. And this is how we bear witness. We bear witness to our commitment to the truth by our willingness to die. Uh, is this a truth that I would be willing to die for? Or moreover, is this a truth where I am morally obligated to be willing to die for it? And if it's been proven to me, then yes, I would be. If it's been proven to me, then I would be under that, under exactly that obligation. Always will be God. So continuing on with uh, podcast, the podcast, the only podcast, um, we are on episode 253. As we continue to wend our way through the study of sins in the New Testament, our study of homartiology brings us to entrepo, which means ashamed. Entrepo, E-N-T-R-E-P-O, entrepo. The first has to do with the shame placed on a disorderly member of the church. The shame is brought to him. This is in 2 Thessalonians 3.14. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man, and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. So this man is being shunned or ostracized uh, so that he would learn shame. Now, his behavior, and the behavior is that of walking in a disorderly way. He, he's not working the way he ought to. Um, he ought to have been ashamed of himself, but sometimes people need help to, be, to become ashamed. They ought to be ashamed, but they're not ashamed. And so Paul says, uh, if, the, if you've got someone who's a layabout, uh, don't even eat with the, uh, you know, mark that man, to stay away from him so that he might learn to be ashamed. Now, when he's ashamed, he's becoming ashamed of his laziness, and that shame is all tangled up with his laziness. The shame is a good response to, uh, to the situation. The shame is like, uh, the pain of uh, you you pull your hand away from the stove when you burn it uh, because your nerve endings protect you. And this sense of shame is a, a gift of God. It's all tangled up with the sin, but it's very, very good that we have this capacity to feel ashamed. That was an occasion where the shame was directed deliberately. It was the, the shame was brought to such, this person. But on another occasion, Paul disavows that this was his intent, even though he uses the same word. 
This is in 1 Corinthians 4.14. I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. Now, let's say they didn't heed the warning and they went into the sin that he was warning them about. He would then write them a second time in order to shame them. Like, uh, like he wanted to do in the letter to the Thessalonians, like he wanted them to do. So once you're in the sin, you uh, you want the shame to come, not because you're 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 not sticking pins in a voodoo doll trying to hurt someone for the sake of hurting them. You want them to turn around. You want them to wake up. You want them to straighten up and fly right because they're they're just fundamentally hurting themselves. The Germans have a uh, uh, a great word. For this uh, fremd shaman, fremd shaman, F R E M D S C H A M E N, fremd shaman, and that's when you are ashamed and humiliated for somebody else who ought to be ashamed of himself, but somehow isn't being. Um, in in scripture, when someone is being uh, like this, uh, you have to uh, bring the bring the shame, not because you're being a Pharisee, pointing at people, but because, you, because, but because you love them. The remaining instance in the New Testament is a shame that apparently rise, arises out of the consciences of those who want to speak evil of Christians, but are forestalled by their godly behavior. So we should behave in such a way that provokes attacks from non-believers, but then at the same time, the material for the refutation of that attack is something that they are, they are themselves aware of. Titus 2.8 says, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. So he's contrary. He's coming after us. He wants to say all sorts of negative things, but at the end of the day, he knows that he can't really. God don't never he's so my book review this uh, time around is... Um, uh, Peter Zion's book, Z-E-I-H-A-N, Peter Zion's book, The End of the World is Just the Beginning. Now, I know I've talked about Peter Zion before. I've talked about his project before, but um, I want to sort of tie it up in a bundle here. Uh, he wrote um, The Accidental Superpower uh, about America. He wrote The Absent super Superpower about America's uh, fracking revolution. He wrote Disunited Nations, and then this is sort of his capstone work. The end of the world is just the beginning. And uh, uh, if you wanted to start, basically, uh, it's pretty fascinating stuff. And um, Peter Zion is an interesting cat, as I've said before. Uh, I think you could get the major thesis of his uh, project, the major outlines of his project, if you just read this last one. If you're only going to read one, uh, I would read this one. If you are going to read two, I'd read this one and the first one, The Accidental Superpower. Um, but of course, I, I've read all four and have enjoyed all four. Um, here's the, the basic outline of his thesis, which I've, I know I've mentioned before, but this, I think, is something we need to continue to review and go over. Um, uh, that globalization is something that people have assumed is the end result of so many millions of years of evolution. In other words, mankind has finally gotten to the point where we evolved out of 
uh, our previous bigotries and we're all going to become one great giant global village and we're going to hold hands and sing we are the world. Um, Zion's thesis is that what we call globalization is actually the result of a policy uh, adopted by the United States and uh, and involving the deployment of our Navy. Uh, at the Bretton Woods Agreement near the end of World War II, we established an order that we wanted to use to resist the Soviets, and we basically uh, committed the U.S. Navy to being the um, uh, coast, the world's Coast Guard. Instead of being the world's policeman, we volunteered to be the world's Coast Guard. So basically, anybody could ship anything from anywhere to anywhere and have that shipping protected by us, which meant that, that uh, certain economies could develop artificially. The main um, exemplum of that would be China. So when Nixon went to China in the 70s, it was for the purpose of bringing China, prying China loose from its uh, connection to the Soviet Union and bringing them into the order. And then the whole Chinese manufacturing world exploded out of that. But China is absolutely and utterly dependent upon the import uh, imp importation of raw materials, fuel, um, parts, that sort of thing. Uh, if that if those supply lines are cut off for any reason, then China is basically done. And so consequently, the whole order uh, depends upon uh, Americans continuing to uh, continuing to want to use the Navy, their Navy in that way. Um, and Zion argues that Americans, both left wing and right wing, have gotten tired of being this, uh, occupying this position in the world and that we're in a period of great retrenchment. And we're pulling back uh, because we can grow all the food we need because we've got a, an amazingly fertile country. And with the fracking revolution, we can be energy independent within a few years and so on. So we're pulling back and becoming sort of the world's gated community. And uh, Zion's argument is that when that happens, everybody's going to discover that the um, the globalization was an artificial construct. And this has, and and I know as I've talk, talked about these things before, this has uh, ramifications for uh, international denominations. It has implications for mission societies. It has implications for uh, families that have. Uh, members of, you know, uh, members of their family living in South Africa and some in the States or in, in Germany and some in the States, you know, what do you, what are we going to do when this all comes crashing down? And, um, and Peter Zion thinks that it, it is, he doesn't, uh, the title of his book, The End of the World is Just the Beginning, indicates that he doesn't think that it's all going to come crashing down forever and ever. He thinks there's going to be nine miles of bad road. Uh, some countries have really got a, uh, a, a difficult uh, road ahead of them. But he also thinks that things are going to shake out and adjust uh, accordingly. Um, the, I would simply encourage any uh, pastor who has any, kinds of, any kind of foreign dealings, uh, mission work, um, uh, any, any kind of mission work, any kind of outreach, any evangelism, 
uh, to get a hold of this fourth book, The End of the World is Just the Beginning, and read it. I don't think he, I don't think that uh, Zion is infallible in his predictions, and some of his predictions are uh, really way too specific for someone in his position. But he's also been right about a few uh, uh, of the big picture items. He predicted the Russia Ukraine war uh, years ago. So, end of the world is just the beginning.